First Corinthians 15 is sort of the resurrection chapter, just as Hebrews 11 is the faith chapter or Romans 6 is the baptism chapter or 1 Corinthians 13 is the love chapter. 1 Corinthians 15 is the resurrection chapter. But um, we do need to do a little bit of uh, background on the Corinthian Ecclesia, um, which we'll cover a little bit this evening, just to uh, see what the issues were with um, with the Ecclesia generally. And the, one of the issues, one of the big issues and the issue that Paul's going to deal with in this chapter is that the Corinthians, or at least some of the Corinthians, uh, had begun to question the validity of the resurrection. So Paul in this chapter is essentially answering two questions about the resurrection. So you can have a look at uh, what um, we read um, in verse 12. How say some of you, Paul says to the Corinthians, how say some of you, uh, or some among you, that there is no resurrection of the dead? And then down in verse 35, that we haven't got to yet, obviously, uh, again, some will say, how are the dead raised up and with what body do they come? So this, this chapter is really answering those two questions. They've got a couple of issues in the Corinthian Ecclesia, a couple of you know, very fundamental issues. And the first part of 1 Corinthians 15 logically answers that first question and the second half of the chapter addresses the second question. Is there a resurrection? And if there is, with what body will we be resurrected? Now note in passing that it wasn't the, the whole ecclesia. Uh, Paul refers to both these questions as coming from some in the ecclesia. So in verse 12, some of you. And in verse 35, some will say, so it's not the entire question, not the entire ecclesia, but some in it uh, have begun to question the resurrection. So how would they come to these conclusions? Well, how would the Corinthian ecclesia particularly uh, come to the conclusion that the resurrection was sort of, you know, passe, perhaps unnecessary? How would they be come to question what we would see as, uh, you know, very fundamental, a very foundation point of our faith. Well, it's sort of, I guess, uh, speculation on our part uh, to a certain extent, but it may well have sprung out of the errors that they'd begun to believe about the virtues of asceticism, uh, which Paul refers back to in chapter 7 and chapter 8. So this idea of asceticism seems to have crept into the ecclesia, and that is um, when people see virtue, in things like abstinence, even within marriage. Um, so denying yourself is a virtue of itself. Um, they saw asceticism as a virtue in itself. They saw virtue in denying oneself per se, not in denying yourself in order to serve God, but any sort of denial of self, they saw as a virtue. And a bit like um, the, you know, certain branches of the Catholic Church still do today. They sort of say, you know, look at me, look how you know, much I'm suffering, uh, look at what I'm giving up for Jesus' sake, as it were. They boast, I'm denying myself food, perhaps, or, or a bed to sleep in, or comfortable clothing. Um, or even in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 7 and, and uh, 6, I'm denying myself sex with my spouse. Uh, all, and that makes me a better person of itself. So they weren't that, of course, far removed from uh, their pharisaical cousins just across the Mediterranean who saw this sort of self-denial as a virtue in itself. And a bit like the Pharisees, they failed to see that by making this big show about self-denial, they were actually indulging in the biggest lust of all, the pride of life. Now, once you accept this theory about, you know, asceticism, that, you know, denial of anything for yourself is, is good in itself. It's not a big step from there to sort of begin to see any sort of perceived um, indulgence in the desires of the body as a sin. Um, and of course, once you see any desires of the body as a sin, it's not a big step to start thinking about the body that produces those desires um, and that that's somehow sort of holding you back from your full potential. And in your eyes, then, of course, the body sort of becomes unclean, not just the sins that it produces, but the body itself uh, we start to see as unclean. And from there, of course, the next step is to start questioning why God would want to raise up this body at all. 
um, this sort of unclean seat of all of our sins. Why would I or God ever want to see this thing again? Uh, doesn't the sort of very idea of God raising up lustful bodies from the grave negate this whole idea of resurrection? That was their argument. And in addition to that, if, if you, Paul, are going to tell us that there is going to be a resurrection, then answer us this. With what body are we going to be raised? And you can sort of hear the scepticism in their question. If you can't tell us with what sort of body we're going to be raised, then your whole teaching about resurrection is questionable. So this is probably where they came to the conclusion that um, the resurrection was unnecessary and, and, you know, and didn't really fit into their whole philosophy. Now, the question, uh, you know, the resurrection is a key to our faith. If, if somehow the resurrection could be disproved, then we as Christadelphians would all be justified really in, in shutting our Bibles and forgetting everything that we've learned from here, from God's word. So Paul spends an entire very long chapter explaining to the Corinthians and to us exactly why resurrection is so important. Our entire faith is built on the, the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead and that he will do the same for all of the faithful. Now, you might not have thought about our faith in that way or about resurrection in that way, especially perhaps if you're young in the truth, but faith in the resurrection of, of Jesus Christ and hope in our own resurrection is the basis for the gospel. So without resurrection, there's no things concerning the name of Jesus Christ because he's dead. And certainly there's no kingdom of God because there won't be any people raised uh, to be in that kingdom. So on that basis of faith, the basis of faith in Christ's resurrection by God, we believe that he can also raise us from the dead too, of course, uh, both spiritually and morally. Uh, so we're going to look at that a little bit later. And without that, as Paul says, we're, we're of all men most miserable. Our faith is vain and our lives are vain. So Paul's faith, and uh, as we'll see, the entire first century Ecclesia's faith was built on believing in the miracle of resurrection of Jesus from the dead, the miracle of the empty tomb. And I think it's not without significance that the miracle that gives us the most faith in the Bible is also based on a resurrection. And that, of course, is the resurrection of the nation of Israel. So when we look at, you know, in our lectures on Ezekiel 37, um, the, you know, the resurrection of the nation of Israel is painted as a resurrection. God uses the language of resurrection to show, to prophesy about um, Israel coming back together as a nation. So we're not going to turn back to Ezekiel 37. You'll know the words pretty well, I think. In verse 1, we've got this valley of, full of bones, dead bodies, of course, that had once been alive, but now they're dead. And then in verse 5, breath enters into them. They will live. In verse 6, they receive you know, their flesh again and skin. And in verse 10, especially note this, Ezekiel prophesies to the wind and breath comes into these newly reconstituted bodies. And what do they do? They stand up. That's the words of Ezekiel 37. They stand up. And that idea of standing up in the resurrection becomes a really key phrase in 1 Corinthians 15. So just keep that in mind. Now, we know that this sort of miracle of the rebirth of Israel as a nation is by no means complete, even, even now. But just as the resurrection of Jesus was the incontrovertible proof of the gospel in the first century... So too now, we have incontrovertible proof of the gospel in the 21st century, don't we? We can't say, you know, if only we had a miracle like the apostles had, you know, of seeing the resurrected Christ. We'd have no issues with our faith uh, if we were witnesses to a resurrection. We can't say that because we have been witnesses to a resurrection, the national resurrection of Israel, a modern miracle to anchor our faith on. And just like the Corinthians, this Resurrection, the resurrection of Israel leaves us without excuse, just as the resurrection of Christ had left the Corinthians without excuse. So that idea of the army in, in Ezekiel 37 verse 10 standing up becomes one of our key terms in 
uh, 1 Corinthians 15. So there's a couple of different words in this chapter uh, that are used to describe the the resurrection process. Um, So there's uh, the word uh, anastasis or anastasis and the Greek word agairo. So the word resurrection, as many of you will know, is the Greek word uh, anastasis, which literally means to stand again, uh, just as the uh, army of Israel did in verse 10 of Ezekiel 37. So we've got the idea of histami, which means to stand, and the Greek sort of prefix ana, which means again. So when Ezekiel tells uh, us that Israel stands up, um, if he was writing in Greek, he would probably be using this word uh, anastasis. The other Greek word uh, used in 1 Corinthians 15 to describe the resurrection is the word agairo, which is always translated here as raised or risen, and it means to wake, uh, to you know, awaken out of sleep. And this idea of standing up, uh, coming to this word uh, uh, anastasis, uh, is used pretty commonly. Uh, it's closely related to this idea of resurrection right through the scriptures. So the idea of standing up in relation to the resurrection, we've seen it from Ezekiel 37. Um, Michael in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1 and 2 of the time of the resurrection, and that that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of the people, and then many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Again in Job 19, verse 25 to 26, in, in Job's statement of faith, his redeemer is going to stand again and Job will be resurrected. And interestingly, in Joshua chapter 3 and verse 16, with the pushing back of the, the river Jordan uh, as Israel entered into the promised land, um, a symbol of that reversal of the natural course of, of humanity from life to death. So the River Jordan represents the course of life coming from the living Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea. So all that water coming down there represents people. It says in Joshua chapter 3 and verse 16, the waters which came down from above stood and rose up uh, upon a heap very far from the city of Adam. So this idea of the waters standing up uh, is the idea of resurrection because they stop going from life down to death and in fact uh, the idea of resurrection is represented there and they stand up all the, uh, all the way back to Adam so they'll be resurrected, people will be resurrected um, right the way back to um, those who lived in Adam's time. So this idea of standing up is closely related to um, the idea of resurrection uh, right through scriptures, not just First Corinthians 15. And in fact, when Paul talks about the gospel in verse 1, as we read of 1 Corinthians 15, he says it's that which the Corinthians received and wherein they stand. So that word stand there in verse 1 is the basis of the word uh, for resurrection. To stand again is to be resurrected, but here they stand uh, in the gospel in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 15. And even this word the use of this word um, begins to show us a bit more about the importance of resurrection in both a physical sense and a spiritual sense. So we're going to be talking a bit more about this later. But you can see that even in the Greek words used that Paul is saying, if you stand in the gospel now, you will stand again in the resurrection later. One's a moral, spiritual standing in in the gospel now. The other's going to be a physical standing again being raised from the dead in the future at Christ's return. And of course the obverse is true as well, isn't it? If we don't stand in the gospel now, we will not stand again uh, to immortality in the resurrection later. So Paul needs to talk about, you know, really more than talk about, he really needs to hammer home, in fact, the idea of the resurrection. Our need to believe it, our need to live it, uh, and our need to place our hope in it, to look forward to it. He needs to show that it's fundamental to the gospel, and that's exactly how he starts out in verse 1. Remember the gospel that I preached to you, Corinthians? You stand in that, and it's based uh, on you standing again in the future. Now, you'll notice that Paul begins this section by calling the Corinthians his brethren. Moreover, brethren, he begins uh, this chapter in in 1 Corinthians 15. 
Now, just think for a moment about the people that he is calling his brothers, his brothers and sisters, uh, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15. Think about all the issues that the Corinthian ecclesia had in their meeting. They had schisms, uh, divisions based on cults of personalities in, in chapter 1. They had misplaced perceptions of wisdom and self-importance um, in uh, chapter 2. They had issues about immorality and incest, uh, which they proudly tolerated in chapter 5. They were suing each other at law uh, in chapter 6. They were consorting with uh, pagan temple prostitutes in chapter 6 as well. They were into this idea of asceticism, as we've seen, but also denigrating marriage in chapter 7. They were sort of uh, willingly putting stumbling blocks in the way of the weaker members of the ecclesia, uh, ignoring their consciences. They had no issues with fellowshipping with their sort of pagan neighbours whose, whose beliefs were completely uh, contrary to the teachings of the gospel. Their memorial meetings, as we read you know, almost every Sunday from 1 Corinthians 11, had really descended into a bit of a farce with people shouting at each other. Um, some were drunken, others were, were starving. They were completely self-focused rather than focused on the sacrifice of Christ. They were you know, sort of yelling at each other in an effort to outdo each other in a you know, demonstration of the spirit gifts. They'd completely forgotten about the, the basis of love in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 13. And we're going to see in 1 Corinthians 15 that some of them didn't uh, sort of believe in this fundamental tenet of the gospel, that is, of the resurrection. So I'm pretty sure that if the, the Corinthian ecclesia was a local Adelaide ecclesia, we, as the other Adelaide ecclesias, would have written off this ecclesia as a lost, as a lost cause. I'm pretty sure we would no longer be fellowshipping with them. And yet Paul calls them, in verse 1, his brethren. He hadn't written them off. He didn't refuse to fellowship them. He didn't by any means shy away from the issues that they have, but he still entreats them as his brothers in Christ, his Christadelphians. So it's a good practice, I think, for us to keep in mind when we're dealing with um, members of our own ecclesia with, which, with whom we might have a difference of opinion or dealing with other ecclesias with whom we might uh, you know, differ in, in practice. If Paul, the spirit-appointed apostle of Christ, continued to treat the Corinthian ecclesia as his brothers and sisters, despite all the issues that we've you know, briefly seen, both doctrinal and moral, uh, then the least that we, as often failing disciples of Christ, can do is continue to entreat each other as brothers and sisters as well. Now, Paul's first section uh, in 1 Corinthians 15 is really all about preaching and delivering the gospel uh, uh, to the Corinthian ecclesia. So you'll notice how he really emphasises this for, uh, through these first few verses. I declare, uh, he says in verse 1, uh, the gospel which I preached, he talks about in verse 1. Verse 2, if you keep in memory what I preached. Um, in verse 3, for I delivered uh, the gospel. Uh, in verse 11, he talks about I or they or we preaching and in verse 12, if, if Christ be preached, so this idea of being preached, the gospel being preached to the Corinthians is a really important theme uh, through this first section of chapter 15. So what's Paul's point here? Well, it really culminates in what he says in verse 11 and 12. It says there, therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach and so ye believe. So this is what you believe, Corinthians. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? So it culminates in the idea that what was preached to the Corinthians was the resurrection from the dead. That's what they believed. The resurrection was preached to them and the resurrection was what they believed initially. Why then, Paul's question is, do they not believe it now? They, they claim to still stand in the gospel, as he says in verse 1, and uh, that word gospel, of course, in the Greek is the noun for the verb to preach. 
euagilizo, it's the same you know, Greek word in, in a different form. They claim to still be standing in the gospel as taught to them, and yet they're questioning one of the key tenets of the gospel. So he's really pointing out that their questioning of the resurrection is illogical. It was part of the gospel that was preached to them. It was part of the gospel they believed. Why are you starting to question it now is, is what he's asking the Corinthians. And Paul is really at pains to point out that he preached the resurrection to them. So again in verse 1, I preached it. You received it. You still stand in it, in this gospel. In verse 2, I preached it to you. Verse 3, I received it from Christ and then I delivered it to you exactly what I received. But he does say in verse 11, it doesn't matter who you, who you heard it from. Whether it were I in verse 11 or they, it doesn't matter who preached the gospel to you, they preached the resurrection as part of that gospel. It doesn't matter whether you heard it from me or from Peter or from any of the other apostles. It doesn't matter who you heard it from because they all preached the same thing, the gospel of the resurrection. Yes, in the case of the Corinthians, Paul was the, the first to preach it to them, but it doesn't matter who did the preaching, the key is what was preached. And the preaching was always the same, was the gospel of the resurrection. So the resurrection is the foundation of faith. Paul had taught them that, and in fact all the apostles had taught them that. Now remember that uh, you might know from chapter 1 of Corinthians that the Corinthians had made a big deal out of personalities. They also sort of claimed to follow a different, you know, ecclesial personality, as it were. Um, so in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 12, some claimed to be followers of Paul, some claimed to be followers of Apollos, others claimed to be followers of Peter, and some claimed to be followers of Christ. So they'd made this sort of, uh, the ecclesia, into a, basically a cult of personalities. They all sort of lined up behind their respective unwitting figureheads. I'm sure none of these people knew that um, you know, the Corinthians had become divided over, over which one they were following, uh, including Paul and Peter. And yet, Paul makes... Uh, so he refers to that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 12, and he makes a few points in 1 Corinthians 15 about that uh, situation in this first section as well. So firstly, as we've seen in this first section of chapter 15, he shows that he and Peter and all the apostles, in fact, preached exactly the same thing. And that that preaching was based around the gospel of the resurrection. So again, in verse 11, it doesn't matter who you believed, it was all the same gospel. Uh, and in verse 12, uh, they all preached that Christ was risen from the dead. So there's no point in lining up behind Peter or lining up behind Paul as though they were going in different directions or taught different things. Peter and Paul were going in exactly the same direction. They preached the same gospel, and that gospel centred around the resurrection. Hey, Timmy, can I get a glass of water? Cheers. I think that's is a part of the COVID safe plan, the, the glass of water. Hopefully. So all the apostles were heading in the same direction. They'd all taught the same thing. And Paul's point is, it doesn't matter, you know, this lining up behind different uh, figureheads is a pointless exercise because they're all going in the same direction and it's really just an excuse for division within the meeting. But what it, the other thing that he does in this first section of, of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is that he goes to some length to elevate Peter and the other apostles and reduce his own importance. So you'll notice uh, when Peter read it that Peter is listed first of the apostles in chapter 5, in verse 5, sorry. Um, so the first person who, who Christ appears to is, is Peter, uh, then the 12, and then in verse 6, 500 brethren, and then in verse 7 to James, and then the other apostles, and then, and only then, in verse 8, he was seen last of all by Paul. He's the last on the list. Peter is the first, uh, and despite the fact that they had received the gospel directly from Paul, he's telling them that they shouldn't elevate him in status above any of the other apostles. Why does he have to make that point? Because I think Paul is keen to set the Corinthians an example of true humility. I think pride was a big 
problem in the Corinthian ecclesia, and Paul perceived that. In their pursuit of selfishness, they continually promoted uh, themselves. And Paul is keen to offer an example in himself of someone who is willing, in fact eager, to put himself last. So when it comes to listing uh, the men, and he leaves out the women in, uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, who had seen the risen Christ, Paul sees this as an opportunity to show the Corinthians how true humility looks. He lists himself last and make sure that they understand that he was the last to have seen Christ. Now, unfortunately, by the time it comes to writing 2 Corinthians, we find that the Ecclesia had sort of taken him literally and were beginning to treat him as the least of all the apostles. By then, they'd sort of written him off entirely and far from sort of having to demonstrate his humility, he's sort of forced to re-establish his credentials as an apostle. And you can read about that in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 uh, and 2 Corinthians chapter 11. So it seems that, uh, unfortunately, the Corinthians sort of missed Paul's attempt to teach them about humility in this, in, in, in this chapter. And instead, uh, they just saw him as a, as a lesser apostle from here on in. Now, finally, about this idea about lining up between, uh, behind different uh, sort of figureheads in the meeting, the divisions, the, the schisms within the meeting. Um, and this doesn't really happen until verse 21. Paul shows them that there are really only two men we can line up behind, and neither of them are Paul uh, or Peter or Apollos. So have a look at verse 21, and it says there, For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Paul says we're either lined up behind Adam or we're lined up behind Christ. There are no others. There's no Paul group or Peter group or Apollos group. You're either lined up behind Christ or you're lined up behind Adam. One's leading us towards death and the other one's leading us towards resurrection. And of course the default is Adam. So unless we're in Christ, we are in Adam and we'll talk more about that uh, next time round. And the Corinthians, of course, were in danger of thinking that they were in Christ, but had failed to stop uh, following Adam. So while Paul doesn't sort of directly refer back to the, the schisms that he talks about in chapter 1, if the Corinthians were still, still reading the book by uh, chapter 15, they could hopefully pick up uh, some of the more ideas about the dangers about lining up behind you know, mortal, fallible human leadership, even within the ecclesia even with behind apostles within the ecclesia. I guess we've seen the dangers of this idea uh, in our own city over the years. Don't make any mortal man, even an apostle, uh, sort of your chosen cult leader, says Paul. But especially don't choose me. The only man to follow was Christ, uh, a man crucified and resurrected. In, uh, there's a couple of key themes, uh, uh, key words that are introduced in verse 2 and 3 of 1 Corinthians 15. So the idea of be believing in vain, um, so that's at the end of verse 2. Uh, and this idea of vanity is the first of them. And that becomes a bit of a key in the next section. Uh, so if we don't believe in the resurrection... It means that our faith is vain. So this idea of vanity without a belief in the resurrection uh, comes out in verse 10, um, where he says, um, his grace which was bestowed upon you was not in vain. Uh, and then in verse 14, a couple of times, and then in verse 17. And then uh, the other idea, the other important idea that pops up in verse uh, 3 is the fact that Christ died. Now, you remember, hopefully, that 1 Corinthians 15 is all about resurrection. But death is also a key theme. And it begins here in verse 3. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Before resurrection, there has to be a death. Now, why is that important? Well, we'll come back to that and we'll see why it's important shortly. But just keep those ideas of vanity and death in mind as well as we go through this chapter. 
So don't forget that one of the Corinthians' key issues is their pride, their self-elevation, rather than the elevation of God. So they were, you know, without uh, putting too fine a point on it, they were self-centred and they needed to turn that into God-centredness. They needed to turn from selfishness to godliness. What's the solution to this? Well, the solution is death. It's the death of self. It's humility replacing pride, making ourselves small, putting ourselves last. So we're going to come back to this idea uh, when we look about this, talk about the spiritual resurrection that we're all uh, going through at the moment. You'll notice in verse 4 that he mentions that Christ was buried. The Christ was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. So why does Paul have to mention that Christ was buried? We know that Christ was buried, um, but Paul thinks it's worth mentioning it here. His burial doesn't seem, uh, on the face of it, to be a very important part of the whole process, at least in comparison to his actual death and resurrection. So why does Paul mention it? So I think he's, what he's doing is laying a foundation for the metaphor that he's going to use later on in the chapter, and that of a seed which is sown in the ground and then emerges later as a plant. So in verse 36, Thou fall that which thou sowest is not quickened except it die. So you sow things into the ground, they go under the ground, and it's from there that they uh, grow uh, as a plant. For a seed to be resurrected as a plant, it has to be buried in the ground. And I think that's why Paul mentions Christ's burial here in the early part of chapter 15 to introduce this idea of transformation that takes place um, in the grave. And that, of course, can only take place in the earth for a seed. So I think that's why he mentions the fact that uh, Christ was buried in verse 4. The idea of seen of then comes out in verse 5 and in verse 6 and in verse 7 and in verse 8. So this idea that Christ, the resurrected Christ, was seen of all these different people um, or groups of people uh, through the first, or through verse 5, 6 and 7 and 8 in 1 Corinthians. And when this idea of seen of is used so many times, you get the impression that perhaps it uh, means more than just to look at. All of these men uh, that had seen Christ, the resurrected Christ, uh, had probably looked on Christ, even Paul himself, had probably looked on Christ as a mortal man. They'd probably looked on him while, they, while he taught, uh, while he performed miracles, uh, and perhaps even at times while he prayed. They'd looked at him while he hung on the cross and his life ebbed from him. But I don't think it was until he was actually raised from the dead that they actually saw him, saw him for what he really was, the Son of God, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Is there any evidence for this? Um, well, I don't think it's just Paul that picks up on this idea of the disciples not really seeing Jesus until he'd been resurrected. And I think that's Paul's point here, that the disciples, Peter, um, the 12, the 500, James, didn't really see Christ until he had been resurrected from the dead. And this is a theme that occurs elsewhere in the New Testament as well. Matthew 28 and verse 10. Jesus says to them, uh, once he's been resurrected, Be not afraid, go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee, and there shall they see me. Now, he doesn't say, as we might say, Tell my brethren, go to Galilee, and I'll see them there. He says, no, it's there that they shall see me. Again, in uh, Mark chapter 16 and verse 7, Go your way, tell his disciples and Peter that he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall ye see him, as he said unto you. And Acts chapter 1 and verse 3, To whom also he showed himself, that is Christ, showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And I think then 1st John, John in uh, his first epistle really spells it out for us. That which was from the beginning, 
which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled the word of life. So John says, not just, you know, we saw Jesus after he'd been resurrected, but we saw him with our eyes, as though there's sort of some other way of seeing anything. And not just we've seen him with our eyes, but we've also looked on him. We've seen him with our eyes and we looked on him. So John's really sort of laying it on thick here, isn't it? In, isn't he in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 1? He says the same thing essentially three times. And then in verse 2 he says, For the life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and manifested unto us. Now, note again carefully what John is saying here. Not, we looked at Jesus and now we're telling you about it. But we have seen Jesus, we've seen his life, and now we show it to you. So it's not just us telling about you, but we're showing Jesus' life to you in our own lives. So John, I think, is really uh, spelling it out for us. He, he's saying that we looked at Jesus, we really saw him, and that changed us so that we began to live the same life as he lived, says John. And you can look at us and see the same life as well. We don't really sort of need to say a word almost, says John. We're showing you in our lives what Christ showed us in his life. We're showing you eternal life now, says John. I'm not immortal, but I can show you what eternal life looks like now because I saw it in Christ and I'm living it in my own life now. So I think that's the importance and why Paul sort of emphasises the fact that they saw the resurrected Christ. It wasn't just that um, you know, they saw him, you know, as we might say, they just looked at him, but they're seeing him in a, in a new light after he'd been resurrected. He's not just listing a bunch of witnesses to Christ's resurrection here. He's not just saying, you know, if you need more proof about the resurrection, then give Peter a call. Uh, he's not saying go and ask these people if Jesus really rose from the dead. I think he's saying more than that. I think he's saying that if you want to see the effect of the resurrection on mortal men, you can see it in all these people that I'm listing here in 1 Corinthians 15. The testimony of the resurrection was not so much in what these men had all seen, but the effect of what they'd seen in their own lives. Them seeing the risen Christ changed their lives. And all of these people, Peter, the apostles, the 500 brethren, James... None of them had really seen Jesus until after the resurrection. And then what they had seen over the past three and a half years made sense to them. The resurrection enabled them to see him. And seeing him, uh, really seeing them, him changed them. It transformed them. It transformed them from Simons into Peters. It transformed them from disciples into apostles. So if we can't see the resurrected Christ... We're never going to be transformed by him. And of course, the biggest transformation took place in Paul himself. In verse 8, Last of all, he was seen of me also, as of one born out of due time. Now, we might think that that is sort of, you know, a beautiful image that Paul's bringing up here in verse 8. Paul was like, you know, a late-born child, perhaps, out of due time, a little bit later than, than the rest of the apostles who believed on Christ during his mortal life. But born nonetheless was Paul. Uh, and we read born and perhaps we think about uh, similar concepts to resurrection, you know, newness of life and that sort of thing. But I think the King James Version and many other versions, in fact, are probably uh, protecting our sensibilities a little bit by translating it that way. The image Paul is using here in verse 8 is uh, much uglier than that. So the Greek word doesn't have anything to do with time or lateness of a birth. The Greek word is ektroma, and it literally means out of a wound. And it means not a late birth, but a miscarriage or an abortion. So the Oxford margin has it correct when it says uh, an abortive. So this is not some lovely image of a late-born living child. The word implies death not life. So when Christ was first seen of Paul, Paul wasn't a newborn child at that stage. 
He was a discarded fetus. He was an abortion. So low does he perceive his own status when Christ saved him uh, on the road to Damascus that he chooses this sort of ugliest of all images to describe himself. He was not alive, but dead. He was never alive. He was born dead in his own estimation. To all human perception, he was irredeemable, not even you know, quite human, perhaps. He was the least, as he says in verse 9, not meet to be called an apostle. And yet, Christ loved him. Christ saved him. Christ gave him the privilege of becoming his chosen apostle to the Gentiles, to the Corinthians. And all those things Paul describes as grace in verse 10. Completely undeserved love from God and from his son. So Paul had already felt the power of resurrection in his own life. Christ had transformed him from a discarded abortion into an apostle of God. That's the power of seeing Jesus. That's the power of the resurrection in Paul's life. That's the power of faith in resurrection. And that's the transformative power that Paul wants the Corinthians to grasp and us to grasp as well. In verse 13, Paul says, but if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen. And so begins this sort of section in this chapter of Paul's arguments based on the wrong idea, of course. If there be no resurrection of the dead, then what? So it's one of those sort of determinative logic statements. If this is the case, then what? What are the logical consequences of there being no resurrection? So he uses some fairly simple arguments in this sort of if-then style to try and show the Corinthians how vital a belief in the resurrection is to their faith and to their hope. So in verse 13, he says, if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? So you notice he doesn't say, if Christ isn't risen, then there's not going to be a resurrection of the dead. He predicates the resurrection of Christ on the resurrection of others. It's the resurrection of others that means that Christ can also be risen. So if it was me writing this, I'd probably say, you know, if Christ isn't risen, then there's not going to be any resurrection of the other dead people in the future. But Paul puts it the other way around, doesn't he? Why does he do this? I think it's because we follow Christ's example. So if we are not raised then Christ would not have, God would not have needed to raise Christ because he is just, no, I'll say just, he is just the first of us. He's the first roots. He's the example. So he goes through the same process as the rest of saved humanity. As verse 20 says, he's the first roots of the resurrection process. There'd be no need for a first roots if there wasn't going to be a second and third and fourth and thousandth roots. Um, as it were, so there would be no need for Christ's death and resurrection if God wasn't using it as a means of saving the rest of humanity. So Paul predicates Christ's resurrection on the idea that we, the rest of God's harvest, are also going to be raised. Without our resurrection, there would be no need to raise Christ from the dead. So that's his first argument in verse 13. Then verse 14, if Christ is not risen, then we preached empty words to you. When we taught you about the resurrection of the dead, then you know, it was emptiness because you know, if, if Christ is not risen. And if that's the case in verse 14 again, if Christ is not risen, then you believed empty words as well. We preached empty words and you believed them. It was all a waste of time. Vanity is our, one of our key words again, first mentioned in verse 2. The emptiness of our faith without resurrection is a big part of Paul's argument. He's forcing the Corinthians to ask, if there's no resurrection, what is the point of everything that we do, everything that we believe? Where's it all leading if there's no resurrection? The answer, of course, is death, just like every other person on the planet. Verse 15, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then we're liars, Paul says, because we told you the cross was raised, but of course he wasn't if, the dead wasn't if the dead are not raised. Verse 16, if the dead aren't resurrected, then Christ was not resurrected. 
Now that sort of sounds like a repetition of verse 13, um, but it really proves a different point this time. In verse 13 it was to show that without resurrection, their belief on it was based on lies. But this time Paul is showing in verse 17 that without resurrection, their belief is vain, not because they believed in lies this time, but because they're still in their sins. And we're going to deal with that shortly. Verse 18, if Christ isn't risen, then the dead in Christ are dead forever. So without a resurrection, they'll remain in their graves forever, just like the rest of humanity. And verse 19, without resurrection, if there's no resurrection, then our life is pointless. It's vain. Uh, We've really got an existential crisis if there is no resurrection. So in, uh, back in verse 13, we can start to see one of these sort of key words that is in uh, 1 Corinthians 15 that we've mentioned. And it's a bit of a surprising one. The fact that death is a key word in this chapter as well. Now I've listed uh, up on the sc- uh, screen, which hopefully you can read, um, all the occurrences of death in 1 Corinthians 15. So in a chapter all about resurrection to life, the word death is a key word. Why is that the case? Well, I think it's because without death, there can be no resurrection. Every resurrection requires a death. Well, that sort of seems pretty logical in a literal sense. You can't resurrect a living person. But the real importance of death in this chapter is not in its use in a literal sense, but in a spiritual one. Every literal resurrection requires a death. There has to be a dead person to be raised. We know that. But every spiritual resurrection also requires a death. And it requires the death of us. It requires the death of me. The Sam Mansfields, the Tim McGeorges of this world have to die. And a resurrected spiritual person, Christ, has to be resurrected in their place. The old man must die for the new man to live. And I think that's why Paul places so much emphasis on death in this chapter that's really all about resurrection. Now, can we show that he is talking uh, in a spiritual sense? Well, he definitely is in verse 31. Just have a look at verse 31. Um, I die daily, says Paul. Now, that's not literal, is it? He doesn't literally die every day. That would be, you know tragedy for his health insurance premiums. So he doesn't die literally every day. Uh, And then in verse 34, he says, awake to righteousness. So it's not, you know, literally waking up to righteousness. He's talking about a spiritual awakening to righteousness here, isn't he? And his death in verse 31, that he dies every day, is also a spiritual death. So the issue with the Corinthians was not just their lack of belief in the physical resurrection of dead bodies but what that implied about their belief in God's power to resurrect them spiritually if we can't believe in the physical transformation of our bodies from rotting corpses or just dust in the ground to immortal beings then we can't believe in God's power to transform us morally from sinners to righteous from serving flesh to walking in spirit, from selfish to godly. The miracle of resurrection is happening now in you and in me. The physical resurrection from God's perspective is simple. That's very easy with God's power to change dust into um, a living creature. He can do that. He proved that uh, back in Genesis uh, chapter 1 and 2. The physical resurrection, from God's perspective, is simple. The hard work is being done now as he tries to get us to crucify our own flesh and walk in newness of life. Come back down to verse 17. If Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. So again, this idea of vanity without resurrection. But for different reasons now. But here is the the key doctrinal point of resurrection. Without it, Paul says, we are still in our sins. 
And if we're still in our sins, we can't be saved, as we know. So our focus when we talk about you know, the, the atonement um, tends to be on Christ's death. And yet here is Paul telling us that resurrection is just as an essential part of the atonement as Christ's death. And of course, it's not the only point, uh, not the only place where he makes this uh, point in his writings. Uh, so you can look at uh, quotes from Romans, which particularly emphasises this point. The resurrection is part of the atonement. So Romans 4 verse 24. Um, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. So righteousness is imputed on the basis of faith in resurrection, not just in, uh, on Christ's death, but also his resurrection. Verse 25, he was delivered for our offences and raised again for our justification. So our justification, our being made righteous, our forgiveness, happens in the resurrection step, not in the death step. He was delivered for our offences, he died for our offences, but he was raised again for our justification. It's the raising again, it's the resurrection that's the important part. Romans 5 verse 10, when we're enemies, we're reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his death. It's not what it says, is it? We're reconciled by Christ's death. We were saved not by his death, but by his life. And chapter 5 and verse 18 again, um, the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. Again, we don't get righteousness through the death of Christ, but by his life. So how does this work? Why is resurrection an essential part of what we call the atonement, the, the process of salvation through Christ? Atonement is, as it, at its most basic you know, sort of understanding, is a two-part process. It's condemning sin and living in God's righteousness. And we have to have both of these things. One's represented by death, and the others represented by resurrection. Both of these things are essential um, as part of the process of our salvation. Christ's crucifixion was intended to symbolically demonstrate that first part, uh, and that we see that in his death on the cross. But the second part comes when he is resurrected from the grave. It's only half the job done if he dies on the cross, isn't it? We can all sort of nod in assent to what was, you know, happened on the cross, that you know, sin deserves death. That's essentially what Christ was saying through that. But where does that leave us? It leaves us dead, doesn't it? We're all sinners. We all deserve death. We agree. The end. But God doesn't want death, does he? He wants life. He created life. It was man's actions that, that introduced death. If sin deserves death, then righteousness uh, in the case of Christ, deserves life. So if Christ just condemns sin on the cross, then we're really only halfway to salvation. And that's Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 15. We need both steps of the process. And that's why resurrection is vital in a doctrinal sense. Because it really points to the second, more positive half of the salvation process. If Christ isn't raised, then we're not saved. So God wants both of these principles seen in Christ's life and seen in our lives. So death and resurrection, the condemnation of sin through death and the walking in newness of life through resurrection. He wants it seen spiritually in our lives now and later on, of course, he's going to make that change permanent, that transformation permanent when he literally raises the dead saints and gives them his own immortal character and power. And Christ showed those principles uh, literally in his death and resurrection, of course, as we know, but also spiritually in his, in his mortal life. He put his own will to death and he did God's will. So we see it in Luke chapter 22 and verse 42. It really summarises these two aspects of the atonement as they applied spiritually, morally, in Christ's mortal life. Not my will, so he puts his own will to death, um, and that condemnation of sin was done in his mortal life for, you know, 33 years before 
It was done in symbol on the cross. But then he (coughs) says, but thine be done. So that's the bit uh, referring to the resurrection, isn't it? That's the bit that really gives God glory. By putting his own will to death, Christ had the freedom to serve God in his full capacity. He's spiritually resurrected to do God's will and that's why he he is still a mortal man. Now, we're not going to go through the law of Moses. It was great at doing the first part, not so great at doing the second part and that was one of the big issues with the law. Galatians chapter 2, another important quote that really um, shows those two aspects um, of the atonement and how it's outworked in our own lives now. Spiritual death and a spiritual resurrection. We need to have both parts. And that's why Paul really emphasises both things in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Death and resurrection. We need to put ourselves to death and we need to be raised through the spirit of Christ, um, spiritually now. And then that will happen in a physical sense uh, at the judgment seat. So again, more quotes about it in in the writings of the New Testament. This idea of both elements being uh, vital can be seen right through the writings of the apostles, not just Paul, but also uh, Peter as well. So every resurrection we know requires a death. (coughs) And that's true for the literal as well as the spiritual. But it's really the second step that God wants. What what use are a bunch of dead people to God? Not much. Even dead people who acknowledge that they deserve death because they're sinners, they're still not much use to God, are they? Even people who say, yes, God, you are right to require death as a consequence of sin, Even those people aren't much use to God if they're dead. Where is the manifestation of God's character if everyone rightly dies? Hezekiah said, the dead can't praise you. And of course he was right in that. So there's no praise to God in that. So if the whole point of creation is to give God glory, then a dead creation is really a pointless creation. There has to be life to reflect the character of the creator. God is life, not death. And his creation is intended to declare his righteousness in life. The resurrection of Jesus was a miracle. And our resurrection at his return will also be a miracle. By the same token, our spiritual resurrection, that that which is happening now, our death to ourselves, and our spiritual resurrection to walk in newness of life is also a miracle. What does that mean? What are the implications of this miracle that's happening in our lives right now? If it's a miracle, that means that it's supernatural. That means that we can't do it ourselves. It means that only God, through Christ, can do it in us. So Romans 7, when Paul's talking about the good that he would do but he can't do and the evil that he doesn't want to do but he does, he's describing himself under the law of Moses, under a set of rules and and regulations. He wanted to change, but rules and regulations didn't change him. Law does not transform. It does not resurrect. You can surround yourself with as many rules, as many restrictions as you like. It won't transform you from death to spiritual life. So if rules don't work, what does work? Well, Paul reveals it for us at the end of the chapter. In Romans chapter 7 and verse 24, I wretched man that I am, none of this is working for me. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Verse 25, I thank God through through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus Christ can do it in us and God can do it through him. So every resurrection needs a death. The death is of ourselves. The death is of our pride. The beginning of our spiritual resurrection is in humility, putting our own pride, our own nature to death. And humility is is key to that. But again, it's a miracle. Just like the resurrection of Lazarus was a miracle, 
no one's sort of standing around watching Lazarus come out of the tomb after four days said oh you know that's just part of the natural process people have been dead for four days often emerge from the tomb Lazarus couldn't raise himself we can't transform ourselves and until we realize that until we cast that burden on God and say I can't do it only you can then it will never happen and just like the miracle of Lazarus, resurrection starts with prayer. And we need to pray for God through Christ to transform us. And he will do it. He has the power to do it. He wants to do it. Just ask him.